You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Look at the book of Job. Um, for those of you who are visitors, we've been going through the book of Job over the past, I'm not sure how long, almost a year. And I feel kind of sad that this is the very, very last one. I'm almost tempted to go back and start again, but uh, there are other parts of the Bible, and I probably shouldn't. But I, I just, I've loved the book of Job, and uh, he's one person I, I certainly want to meet in heaven. And this is the end of that Job chapter 42. It's on page 542. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My eyes had heard of you, <clears throat> but now, my ears had heard of you, sorry, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I think this is uh, an extraordinary ending to this book in lots of ways, and we'll go on and read the rest. We're going to uh, sing after we've just looked at these first few verses. I don't know if you're a Downton Abbey fan, but if you are, no, there are people shaking their heads going, how dare you even mention it? But there are other people who are. And those of you who watched Downton Abbey last Christmas, there was a hilarious phone call that got tweeted around all over the place. Somebody phoning up ITV in tears saying, my Christmas has been ruined because uh, Matt died. Uh, if, you don't, if you just bought the box set and you don't know what happened, sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's a year old. You've got to at least allow for that. Um, because it's got to be a happy ending. You know, everything's got to be uh, a happy ending. It was not a happy ending. And in the world that we live in, people like this idea that, that, you know, they lived happily ever after. Now, Job has been such a fascinating book because it has been a story of a man who is a good man, a godly man, who worshipped God, who was a leader in his community, who cared for his family, and who lost everything, lost his family, lost his health, lost his status. And as you know, the book of Job is really an extended poem in which Job interacts with his friends, trying to make some sense of what has happened and trying to, they're, I suppose, trying to help him get through it. They're not very good at that. And he's trying to work out himself. And it comes to the end after all of that and the immediate chapters to this when God has spoken, we, we saw that God was saying, you're asking all these questions about suffering, look at the hippopotamus. And we, we saw that that seems such a strange answer, and yet when you look at it, it's really God telling Job to look at him. And then we come to this ending, and for some people, it seems kind of flat. It seems as though, oh, everything's suddenly all right. It seems to reverse all that. Is this going back to the old prosperity theology? After you've suffered a while, God will really, really bless you, and you'll get back many times what you have lost. Now, I don't think that's 
that is what this chapter is saying. And as, as we go through it, I hope that you'll uh, see uh, what is being said. John Calvin once said that all the wisdom we need ever to know is to be found in knowing God and knowing ourselves. You can't Google that and you can't wiki that. It's really hard to know yourself and to know God. And that's really what Job now says. Who is God? Job replies to the Lord. He tells us several things about God that are absolutely true and vital. Number one, I know that you can do all things. That's the dispute that Job has with God over. That's Job saying, it's finished. I have no more questions. I have no more complaints. You can do all things. That's not just saying that God is almighty, but it's saying that God has a purpose in what he does. It is one thing to believe that God can do anything. It is another thing to believe that what God has permitted or what God has done or what God has allowed in our lives, God can do. I'm reading something just now, which I, I really, I love it. I love Augustine. Augustine against the Manichaeans. And uh, they tried to resolve this problem of why bad things happen to good people by dividing the world dividing the universe into that created by a good God and that material that was from a bad God. And I think a lot of us in our theology in terms of practice are a little bit like that. We have a view of God which in theory says He's almighty, but in other things in practice we act as though He is not. And Job says, and remember he has said this, though He slay me, yet I will trust Him. It is an extraordinary understanding of God to say, Lord, this world is full of darkness. There is so much pain and so much suffering and so much sorrow, yet I know you can do all things. It is recognizing that God has a purpose for what he does in the midst of the most incredible suffering. I know he says that you know all things. Who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Now, here's the point. I don't think that Job's suffering ever made sense to him. As far as we know, he's not told here what happened back when the, the devil came and accused him. Maybe he didn't know that. Maybe he didn't. We don't know. But I doubt that Job could sit down uh, and say, now I understand why all that happened. But what he's arrived at is a far greater point. Not that he's able to make sense of his world and what's going on, but he believes that it makes sense to God and he trusts God. In fact, he's learning to trust God. He has a new appreciation of the scope and harmony of God's world, of which he is but a small part. You see, when we demand that everything makes sense to us, then what we've done is we've put ourselves at the center of the universe and we've said, God, you've got to explain it all to me. And we can't cope with that. But Job is learning that it all makes sense to God and therefore he will rest and he will relax even in God. 
Paul, Philippians 4, verses 12 to 13, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether living in plenty or in want, whether well-fed or hungry, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. It's extraordinary how many times I've seen that verse in part on people's walls or on bookmarkers or in their Bibles. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. It is entirely wrong to take that phrase out of the context where he says, I've learned to be content whether I'm in hunger or in plenty, whether I'm in sickness or in health, and so on. He's saying, I'm able to live with all the pain, with all the suffering, and with all the sorrow because of the strength that God gives. God knows all things. Now, that should be those two things should be incredibly helpful for us in this. We stress ourselves out trying to have strength to control our circumstances ourselves, and we stress ourselves out trying to know, trying to grasp, trying to understand everything. But Job's attitude that he's learned through suffering, and I wonder if any of us learn this, can learn this any other way. Job's attitude is, God has strength, and God has all knowledge, and I trust God. I trust Him. He is good and the giver of all things good. He's also in control. God is not like the genie in Aladdin's lamp at our beck and call. One man writes it this way, knowing that God is in control keeps us from falling apart under the strain of events. You're sitting in a nice warm church this morning. It hasn't always been that way in the past couple of weeks. And uh, it was funny, I came down on uh, Christmas Day and the heating wasn't working. And, you know, we had to call out the, the boiler people who I feel that I've developed quite a close relationship with British Gas Boiler Man over the past few uh, weeks. And I felt we should have been exchanging Christmas cards and, and New Year's greetings I came down and I thought, oh, goodness, this is, I'm so stressed. And then I realized, what do you know? You know nothing about boilers. You can't do anything about this. There is zero point in stressing out about something that you can do nothing about. And strangely, that's actually quite a cathartic thing to, to be able to say, what, what is the, you know, there is no point in that. Not because you despair and you give up, but you just simply say, Lord, you know all things. You could go into this next year full of fears about what might happen or concerns about what has happened. And you would, I think you would really, really struggle. You can shrug your shoulder and say, well, what can I do about it? Que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. Or you can say, I know that you know all things. I know that you can do all things. And I know that you are in control. And I think the fourth aspect of that, which is very important, is that God is good. Job is written that we might not question the goodness of God. You see, there's a subtle thing happens when we question the goodness of God. And I think it's this. I think we end up being more concerned about goodness than about God. And we tend to judge God by our standards, thinking that our criteria is the one by which we can decide whether God is good or not, and we just get it the wrong way round. 
So many people will say something like, I cannot believe the Bible. I cannot believe Christianity because basically God is not good. And they discern goodness by their own criteria. But we mustn't do that. My whole faith rests entirely upon this, that God is good and the giver of all things good. And when I see things that are evil and don't understand what all that is about, then it's not for me to turn around and say to God, oh, you're not actually good at all. I'll tell you what good is. It is for me to say, Lord, I just don't know. Please, can you help? That's why we sang that psalm, Psalm 131, because it is, it, it, it is the picture of the weaned child, the young child, the infant lying in its mother's arms. That baby, that child, can be in the midst of the most incredible storm, can be in the midst of a war zone, and will know that they are loved and that they feel safe. A child in a home in Dundee today will feel no more safer than a child in his mother's arms in South Sudan or Syria. And that's the image that the the psalmist is using. He's saying, I am like a weaned child in my mother's arms. And if we understand and grasp that God is good. The goodness of God is such an important doctrine and such an important practical theology, then I think it makes an enormous difference to us. He's also beyond our knowledge. We do have to confess to ignorance. My eyes had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Job also confesses presumption. It's very, very hard for some of us to confess to ignorance. I've got this worked out. I've got this sorted out. It's why we like to formulize things. It's why we like to say, you do this, you do A, and then B, and then C will happen. But that's not how our relationship with God works, because our relationship with God works purely on this basis that we believe that he is good, and we know that he knows everything, And we acknowledge our own ignorance. Who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? It's funny. There are some people who say, because I don't know, I can't believe in God. I reverse that completely and say, because I don't know, I I believe in God. Because I realize I'm not in a position to know and to sit in judgment upon absolutely everything. And to demand to God, go on, you've got to prove yourself to me. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. He already has in so many ways, but he is not at my beck and call, nor yours. And yet, here's the amazing thing. He can be known and experienced. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. The personal experience of God transcends the suffering, the isolation, and the injustice. It is more than mere theory about God. My ears had heard of you. It was being able to speak to God, being able to meet with God. That was one of the great wonders, and still is, wonders of God's grace. And it's something that we can do even when we are conscious of our own failings and weakness. How many times have you said, I can't go to church this morning because I feel rubbish, because I'm conscious of my own sin, because I'm conscious of my own weakness, because I don't even know what I think or what I believe anymore? That is precisely the point at which 
you, you come. It humbles us that we don't have everything sorted. It humbles us that we, we haven't, we're not in charge of, of our own lives or of our families or everyone else's or of our churches, that we are utterly and totally dependent like the weaned child on God. It humbles us, but it's also very real and very wonderful. I don't know if I prayed a more earnest prayer than, Lord, let your beauty shine upon me. Let me feel your presence. Now, I think in the Christian church, we're always driven to extremes, and there are people who, you know, push feeling and push feeling and push feeling and try and work up feeling and, and get really hyped up, and it's as though they're on drugs. And we are, of course, we're all intelligent, reformed people, and we go, no way. We are going to sit there, and we are not going to feel anything because we don't trust our feelings. And it's quite funny. I mean, over the past year, and this is a, a wee St. Pete's thing for those from Grace, but you lot look pretty well the same in some ways anyway, that every now and then someone will say, I'd really like to raise my hands in church. I go, well, why don't you? Oh, you know. And we do the kind of wee Presbyterian one, you know. <laughs> that's just <laughs> not the... And, I mean, look, I don't care about raising hands or not. It doesn't bother me personally. I'm, I, if people say to me, you have to do it, I'm, I'm, I'm like that. And if people say to me, you're not allowed to do it, I'm, I'm the fool, you know, uh, like that. But it's, what, what, what gets me just there is that kind of idea. I mean, people want to raise their hands. You raise your hands. You want to express joy in different ways. You do that. It's not, it's not like compulsory and it's not banned. But I think one of the dangers that we've got into is we go, I don't want to feel too much because, for example, if I feel too much joy, then I'm going to lose it. And then, uh, listen, it's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. It's better to have been overwhelmed with joy. But if I feel joy, I will also feel sorrow. Believe you me, it's much, much better to feel sorrow than to be emotionally dead. In actual fact, to experience the presence of God, is there anything that you would want more? Is there nothing, is there anything rather that's more reassuring than being in the worship of God's people and just going, oh, he's here. That's just wonderful. He's speaking. He's here. I heard of you, but now I see for myself. Now I understand. I think that that is just absolutely crucial. Who is God? He can do all things. He knows all things. He's in control. He's good. He's beyond our knowledge, yet he can be known and experienced. And the second question, who am I? I am small compared with God. Therefore, I despise myself and repent and dust and ashes. The myself is not here in the Hebrew. It's just literally, I despise. The idea is more this idea of feeling before God, I melt into nothingness. He repents. And that is so different than the bitterness of sitting on his ash heap, picking his boils, questioning, arguing. It's gone. The bitterness is gone and his tension with God is resolved. I am so small compared with you. I despise. And yet that is a comfort for him because he says, I matter to God. Can we think too lowly of ourselves? 
Yes, we can. We can be too conceited, but we can also deny the truth about ourselves in terms of what we are in Christ. And isn't it amazing how the devil drives us to extremes? That some of you are here this morning and you're thinking, yeah, I know all that stuff about forgiveness and God and so on, but really God's very lucky to have me on his side. And you are very proud and you are very arrogant people spiritually. And God will humble you because you cannot get close to him with that attitude. But there are some of you, and what you, what you do is this. You go, I am so unworthy to come into the presence. It, it is not possible for me to come. And you can, as a Christian, deny the truth about yourself in terms of Jesus Christ. The sin there is in thinking too much about ourselves and not enough about Jesus. And ironically, even as I say that sentence, I know that some of you will go, yeah, oh, that's what I do. Oh, I'm so awful. I can't come because I'm... And and you just want to pull your hair out because you're saying to somebody, don't you understand what this is about? And the answer is no. It's only when we focus on Christ and not on ourselves and not on our own sin that we truly discover our true self. That's exactly what happened with Job. My eyes had heard of you, but now, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. The dust and ashes is the humility, a humility which drives us to true prayer. Abraham Lincoln said this, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had nowhere else to go. Think about that. Many times to my knees, by the overwhelming conviction, I had nowhere else to go. There are some of us, we've got lots of other places to go. And so we don't go to God. We throw in God at the end. But some of you are so desperate, where can you go? You have nowhere else to go except God. And come back to what we said about God. God is good. Is God going to turn you away? Oh, yeah, but you don't know my sin. You don't, don't, don't you grasp it? I don't know your sin, but God knows. And he invites you to come. And he's not the God who invites you. If he's good, he doesn't invite you and say, ah, joking. No, that's not how it works. But sometimes we need to grasp that. We need to grasp that things are too overwhelming, that things are too massive, that things are too big. Where can I go? I can only go to God. Well, we'll look at the last few verses a bit quicker, but we're going to sing again. We're going to sing a psalm that I think is a summary of of what happened to Job. Job chapter 40, he was in the pit. Sorry, Psalm 40. He was in the pit and God rescued him. We'll just read what the NIV entitles the epilogue from verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They they comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him, 
and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Keziah, and the third Kerenhapuk. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them as an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation, and so he died, old and full of years. Now, there's so much I could say about that, but I do. you want to get home, I know that. So I'm just going to summarize it in this way. Some people think that the book should end at verse 6, and in one sense it does. But I think that what goes on here is this is a bonus. This is not prosperity theology, do this and God will give you this. It is what God does. He lavishes grace upon us. You know how it is at Christmas with the people that you love. You say, well, things are really tight this year and we don't really want you know, to give too much and let's you know, not go over the top, which is a really sensible and good thing to do. But sometimes you can't help yourself. You want to lavish something upon somebody. And you could get it cheaper and you could do it in a different way. And God could do exactly that with us. But it's extraordinary, not only that God is good, but he does lavish upon his people. First of all, God is, is, gives a verdict on Job's friends. Um, he's angry with them. At least he, he is angry with the first three. There's nothing said about Elihu, which uh, means I have nothing to say about that. You can discuss that and argue what that means theologically uh, over the table. I haven't a clue. But the three friends says this. God says, I've, I'm angry with you. You have not spoken to me what is right. He says you are fools. I will not listen to you, but I will listen to Job if he prays for you. They had felt so superior to Job and so knowledgeable about God. Now, what did they say that was wrong? Because if you read their speeches, you, you kind of go, yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that. They said a lot of good stuff. Well, I think it's this. They spoke of God in the third person. Job speaks personally. I will question you. you uh, my, I, I despise myself. I know that you did that. You, and he speaks of God personally. They speak about God. Job speaks to God. And that's a huge difference. Some of you have this tremendous interest in theology and discussing problems and apologetics and stuff like that. But what a terrible thing to speak about God, but not to speak to God. And Job now has to speak to God for them that they would be forgiven. I think, as in the whole book of Job, there's an echo of Jesus in all of this because the suffering servant intercedes for his people. And I think that's a wonderful thing because, again, you might be here and you're battered and you're bruised and you're suffering and you're full of doubts and fears. And, and the devil, it's so easy, he just goes like that and you blow over because you're just so weak. And you, you can't pray for yourself and then you realize, wait a minute, there's somebody who prays for me. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to him in prayer. 
But when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit himself carries our prayers, intercedes for us. I think it's wonderful that Job prayed for his friends who had so annoyed him. Is that not the real test of suffering that it makes us more Christ-like and forgiving? I was saying to the children earlier that, you know, we do get tired and stressed, don't we? And maybe lots of stuff happens to us that we can justifiably moan about. But I don't think it's Christ-like suffering if it makes us more crabbit and and more moany and wanting to blame people and angry. The real test of suffering is it makes us more Christ-like and forgiving. I love also here that they had to offer a sacrifice, a burnt offering, and it was a really expensive one. I mean, seven bulls and rams. Bottom line is, only royalty could afford such a sacrifice. That's what God wanted. The hands were laid on the animal, identifying the victim with the worshiper. There was representation. There was substitution. It went up in smoke, symbolizing God's anger against sin. And what that does is it shows how seriously God treated their words and their playing with the Bible and their playing theology. Matthew 5, 21 says this, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, raka, meaning fool, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. Uh, sorry, not meaning fool. That's the next bit. Raka was just a kind of like, yuck, you horrible person. Uh, but anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. We know those words because they're from the Sermon on the Mount, but grasp them. Jesus is saying murder is a really horrible thing, isn't it? But when you speak against your brother, that's like murder. I, I, I love it that people go, oh, the Old Testament God was so stern and strict and all these laws and, and New Testament, it's just so chilled out and Jesus is really cool, isn't he? And he says, no, you're angry against your brother. You say you fool. It's like you've committed murder. And the standard is way higher, way, way higher. And that's illustrated, I think, in this, that God cares about the reputation of his people and God cares about his own word and God cares about his own glory. You have not spoken of me as my servant Job did. Sometimes some of us have to bow before God in repentance at our arrogance and ignorance, and spiritual pride. And then God vindicates Job. He calls his, Job his servant four times, my servant Job. God himself is vindicated. Look at Job 1 verse 8. Have you considered my servant Job? And the devil goes, yeah, right. He's not your servant for nothing just because you bless him. And at the end, God has been victorious and God has been vindicated. Job has remained faithful. 1 John 3.8 says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. And what does God use and who does God use? He uses his people to destroy the devil's work. There's God's vindication of Job. Do you know, you may be tempted to look at people around you. You may be tempted to look at other people and in different situations and saying, why are they so blessed? Why are they getting so much? Why am I really struggling? What's going on with me? Forget all of that because on the day of judgment, all you want to do is stand there and say, 
and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in to the kingdom prepared for you. Job has his fortunes restored. Uh, It's not a reward. It's a double favor. He gets comfort from his relatives. The gifts of money and gold are gifts of esteem. They're not wealth. That was already had been restored. I wonder what comfort Job would have received from these. Possibly very little. They were not there in his hour of need, his friends and family. They just weren't. It's amazing how many friends you have when things are going well and when you don't need them so much and how lonely you can be when things are not going well. Real, deep friendships are hard to come by. And I suspect that even in the church, there are some of you who feel, I am so, so lonely. There's nobody I can really, really talk to. You know, we talk about mentoring and programs and so on, and I think that's great. I really do. But I think the minute you've turned it into a program, there is a problem. We just need people. And those of you who are older Christians, you need to come alongside the younger ones. Not to put them through a program, not to get them to a certain level, and then you say, that's it. They just need a spiritual mother and father. They need a spiritual older brothers and older sisters. What can I do? What can I do? You can, you can connect with people. You can pray for people. You can walk together with people. Real deep friendships. Who are hard and still are hard to come by. But thank the Lord that they exist. And there's the family blessing, isn't there? Seven sons and three daughters. And what I love about this, this is like, this is like Esther. This is like the first feminist book in the, in, in the world. You know, because... Seven sons and three daughters in a patriarchal society where the sons get the inheritance and so on. The seven sons are not named. The three daughters are. And they are given an inheritance which is contrary to custom. I'm not sure what all of that is, but Jemima means dove. Kezia means cinnamon. And Keren Hepuk means the Avon lady. Well, not quite. It's, it's, uh, Karen Hepok was a, a, a highly prized black eye shadow. So, you know, if you're a younger woman here and you wear black eye shadow and your mom says, what are you wearing that, you Jezebel? You say, well, wait a minute. God blessed uh, Job and he gave him a daughter that he named him black eye shadow because that, that, is, that is what it means. They were also unusually beautiful. Now, as a father of two daughters, I understand uh, that my two daughters are both unusually beautiful. Uh, but that's, but I think this was, the, nowhere in the land where they found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. Now, I think all of that, don't be looking for all too much deeper meaning. I think it's just simply this. It's family blessing and old age, all gifts from God, all gifts of God's grace. You cannot earn them, but you can receive them. And I think that is is just what that passage is saying. And there are some of you who are, this Christmas, are able to say, Lord, I just thank you so much for my family. And others are able to say, I thank you so much that I've lived another year. And in in a culture which generally despises the elderly, those of you who are older, it's just, it's, it's what a tremendous gift to be enabled to have lived so long. Others, of course, will be looking and saying, 
But I've lost some of that blessing. I don't have that family blessing or I've lost loved ones and so on. Because all of us will say that at some point. But that's, if you like, that's the way that life is. There, there, are, there are blessings and there are pains and sufferings and sorrow that we all have. We can't earn, but we can receive. But I guess the main point is just simply this. First of all, as in this, your comes your relationship with God. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Job had thought he would never be happy again. Could you not understand that? Could you not, can you not grasp that? Your three children, your seven children have died. Your, your wealth is all gone. Your status is all gone. Your faith is in shreds. Do you not understand the level of depression? I will never, ever be happy again. But he was wrong. And that's the great hope we've got in the gospel. When Jesus came, he preached from this, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. This is the wonderful good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The promise that is given in Job, the promise that is mentioned throughout the New Testament that God will send a redeemer, that God will send a savior who will give his people beauty for ashes. God brings beauty into broken lives. That is the message of Job. May God bless his word. Uh, Richard will come and lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for these times when we can come together as your people and to learn more about you. And Lord, we thank you that uh, through your word and through the preaching of your word, we have learned more about you. We thank you that, uh, that you know all things, that even though we are perplexed and uncertain and sometimes in total ignorance, Lord, that we have the assurance and comfort of trusting in the heavenly Father that knows all things and works out all things in accordance with your perfect will. Lord, we thank you that we can know you better and that we can know ourselves better through your truth. Lord, help us to see ourselves as you see us, according to your truth. Lord, help us to have the faith and the trust to know and believe that we are loved by you and that we are cared for by you. Lord, that we are protected and instructed and even saved by the living God. Lord, help us to be in awe of these truths and to rest in them. Lord, help us to teach us also to, to respond like Job did in repentance. Lord, not the, the dour, grudging repentance that is just joyless and hard work, but the repentance that causes joy to erupt in heaven and also the, the repentance that produces joy in our own hearts as well. 
Lord, we thank you that we are part of a church that knows the Heavenly Father. Lord, we thank you that Grace Church as well, who meets with us now this morning, is also a church that knows the Heavenly Father. And Lord, we ask that as your people that we would grow in a knowledge of you. And that this knowledge would not just be a bookish knowledge, but a living and believing and life-changing knowledge. So, Father, we thank you for teaching us this morning. And we ask that we would learn and uh, live out what we've learned this morning. But, Father, we we thank you for the Christmas period that's just passed. Lord, we thank you for the many opportunities that we've had to share the good news of Jesus when the Saviour of the world came into the world. Lord, we ask that uh, your word would not return to you void, but will accomplish all that you have planned for it to accomplish in people's lives. We pray for those family members and colleagues and friends who may maybe have heard the good news of Jesus for the first time. Lord, we do pray that you would uh, cause that word to produce faith and belief um, in their lives. We also pray for those who have had difficult Christmas periods. Lord, we pray for those who have been grieving or have been lonely or have struggled with doubt over the whole message of Christmas. Lord, we pray for them, Lord. We pray that they would find comfort and strength and fellowship amongst your people and in your word as well. We pray for those who are sick. We prayed for the fears and the difficulties that sickness often produces. We pray particularly for the Andersons. Lord, we ask that... In this season that's often associated with joy, Lord, I pray that they would have joy in their knowledge of you and in their trust in you, of your care and providence. We also pray for those who are unemployed as well, whose unemployment has in some ways limited their enjoyment of Christmas. Lord, we ask that they would not lose hope, but that they would continue to trust in your provision and your care in their lives. Lord, we pray, pray for those who are facing significant, significant uh, decisions and, and questions in this new year. Lord, we pray they would trust in your providence and in your wisdom, and that they would know your wisdom in those situations. So Lord, we also pray at the end of this, uh, this year and into the new year, we, we pray that this new season will be, um, uh, be good for, this, for, for your people in this church and in Grace Church also. Lord, it wouldn't just be merely a time where we make resolutions, just trying hard in our own strength and our own wisdom. But Lord, in this new year, we'll be a people who continually comes to Jesus to sit at his feet and to learn from him and to work out our salvation in the power of your spirit. We pray that in the new year that your heavenly, your beauty would shine upon us uh, and it would shine through us as well in this new year. Lord, we pray that we would be a people who knows the grace and the power of God and that would demonstrate the grace and the power of God to those around us also. So, Lord, we thank you for this time. Thank you for teaching us. Lord, help us to be doers of your word and not merely hearers in the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk 
for information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.